Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Armchair Booking Wrestling Podcast. I am your host. My name is Steve, and my co-host is Kyle. Say hello, Kyle. I am tonight. Um, you may want to say it again, Kyle. Something happened, and it kind of broke up a little bit. It's time for a body slam tonight. It is. It really is. And tonight we're going to be talking about WCW the Fall Brawl 1997, or is the way we were just discussing it, maybe one of the last good pay-per-views they put on. However, uh, it kind of destroyed wrestling and at least the horsemen in the state of North Carolina. But before we get going, I would have to tell you about how to contact us and how if, if you how to listen to us, um, the different ways anyway that you can actually find us. You can email us at armchairbookingpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash armchairbookingpodcast. We are on Twitter at, at bookingarmchair. Where you can find us on iHeartRadio. You can find us on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. Just do a search for armchair booking, and we should be the first thing that pops up every time I search for it. Kyle, have I forgotten anything? No, I think you covered them all. Yep, and I'm still looking for different avenues because apparently I can get us on Amazon. Did you know that Amazon does podcasts? I did not. Yep, so I'm going to see if I can get us on there as well. And hopefully we can grow our audience. And if you have been a listener to us, tell your friends. We'd always love to grow our audience. We'd always like uh, some feedback, anything you can give to us. And believe me, whether it be good, bad, ugly, we can only improve what we know about. You know, or if we tell us we're doing great, we will keep on doing what you think is great. That's how we roll. So anyway, so Kyle, before we start into WCW Brawl, Fall Brawl 1997. We'll go ahead and take our first commercial break. And we're back. That is, if I'm able to actually put the commercials in later on when I'm editing, because apparently last week nothing went in, even though I tried. No, <laughs> you so mad. Uh, it, you know what? I, I put the breaks in there, and then I go through the website I use to actually insert the adverts, besides just at the beginning and end and sometimes the file just will not load into the website don't know what it is but sometimes I get lucky and I'm able to load a bunch so you take the good and the bad there you have the facts of life so Kyle talk about about what you just talked about good and bad yes and one of the good things about WCW in this time period was the cruiserweight division. Yeah, it was. And it started in 95 with Pillman and Liger, but they opened the show with Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho for the cruiserweight championship. And you couldn't pick two better wrestlers to open a pay-per-view in this time period. Could you? I, you know what? I don't think you could. Um, and that this was a match that just, if you were to see the two names on paper, you'd think, oh, this is going to be a great match. A lot of action, a lot of good moves, a lot of good counter moves, and it lived up to the expectations. And 
I, I don't want to say either one were even in their prime yet. And this they, is where they Jericho, lit it up. Jericho was really good. So was Guerrero, but they weren't even close to what they'd be in the WWE four years later. Yeah. And just watching them, I mean, you forgot how many moves that both of these guys could do. Because later on, even when they were in the prime, you know, and I think every wrestler falls into this, their move set seems to diminish a little bit for whatever reason. Maybe that I don't know if somebody's telling them don't do as many moves, but that wasn't happening right here because they were pulling out everything and they put on a great match. And of a thousand and one holes. Yes. So he displayed quite a few here. But opening match, Jericho was over as cruiserweight champion, not as over as he'd get with Ralphus. May he peace. Yeah. But and Eddie Guerrero, this was pre-injury, pre-substance problems. Man, that man could could go. The one thing that did confuse the ending confused me a little bit. I think maybe something got botched, um, but they kind of rolled with it when Jericho had Eddie up. Uh, he was doing the superplex off the top, and Eddie kind of twisted in midair. I don't know if he was trying to land on Jericho like in a pinning position. Um, and just didn't twist over far enough. The, but the way it looked when he moved, it almost looked like Jericho gave him a brain buster from there. But then Eddie got up, went to the opposite corner, or the, the next corner over, did the frog splash for the win. I mean, so the, the ending itself at the final move did make sense. The steps leading up to it didn't because they said, oh, Jericho must have landed on his head. And I'm like, it didn't appear like that to me. So I'm thinking that there may have been a botch, but they still pulled it off. That that may have been the only blemish in the match. But I'd agree the right man went over. I wouldn't have anything to change for it. No, I mean, to be honest with you, either one of them could have got the pin, and I would have been happy. Because, I mean, the match itself, you know, was great. The ending actually made sense. When he came off, hit the frog splash, boom, one, two, three. Nowadays, he would have to hit it three times and plus – you know, in a small package to get the pin. But, you know, it, it, this ending's made sense. So from, from here, we get a uh, tag team match with the Steiner brothers and Ted DiBiase against Harlem Heat. And they have Miss Jackie in their corner. I, I'll, I'll tell you, being a Steiner brother fan, Ted DiBiase never fit with them. No, he didn't. And this was one of the – I had actually, you know, and this, I guess, show my old age. This is another one of those things that I did not remember DiBiase being with them, even though it must have been for a very short time because also the look that Scott Steiner had when he walked in, you know, when he walked down the aisle, he had the goatee. You know, so that part of his look was already starting, and he was still jacked to the gills. 
know, and he, you know, that part was good, but his hair was still jet black. You know, he, he hadn't dyed it yet. He hadn't dyed any of the goatee yet. And I don't think that look lasted very long either. No, he, he was starting his heel turn. Like he was developing the personality to, to, to go heel. But DiBiase, definitely not a bit. Um, I understand why he joined the signers back then because Eric Bischoff was the mouthpiece for the NWO at this time. So DiBiase wasn't really needed. But the signers were just not that that choice. Yeah, it was, it was just – it was like he was kind of there. And it, during this time, DiBiase didn't want to have anything to do with the WWE also. Um, or it was still the WWF at the time. Um, but I thought the match itself, I mean, I thought this was another one that it delivered exactly how you thought it would. You know, two great tag teams, two big bulky tag teams um, that could still do good moves. You know, it wasn't going right. to be as high-flying and, and scientific as Guerrero and Jericho, but they still had um, the move sets that you wouldn't necessarily expect for guys of this size. And I love the, what was it, the Heat Seeker, where it almost looked like he was there, Harlem Heat was going for the Doomsday Device, but instead he hit the drop kick. Different. Yeah. And thinking of, like, Man, he's pretty high up for somebody doing a drop kick, and he's got to come right down and kind of brace himself. I was like, "There's some pretty good height there," you know. He, so many good moves, like the Harlem Hangover leg drop. Yeah, was, was something else. But um, this is another one. You know, the Steiners won, but it, you know, it's another one of those matches. I I would have been okay with either team winning because the match itself was good. Yeah, and, the, the Steiners and Harlem Heat always had pretty good matches. I believe the Road Warriors had already left the promotion by this point. They were already back in WWF. Yeah, this is a '97, so yeah, I believe. so. So, yeah. But quite a few tag matches on this card. Something different than... It's something you'd see on SmackDown, but not something heavily featured on WWE programming. Actual tag teams. Right. I mean, even though later on, you know, there there is a tag match that just kind of has some people just kind of throw them together. But, I mean, it still makes sense. Um, now, the next match, um, Alex Wright and Ultimate Dragon, you know, for the uh, the TV championship. And another match that you look at on paper and, and you can already kind of picture in your mind the kind of moves that's going to happen. And sure enough, you know these move, um, the the scientific flying counter moves 
you know, and it's a good thing they didn't put this match right on on exactly um, following Eddie and Jericho because it wouldn't have worked because it'd been like they're trying to outdo, you know, that match, you know, so it, um, but, you know, you're talking about two more high flyers, two more actual cruiserweights, even though they're going for the TV championship. And I thought it was also a pretty good match. I'd forgotten about Alex Wright, them trying to turn him heel. Well, he 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 went heel as Berlin. Well, they but... were tr- they were trying to here because Ultimo Dragon, you know, uh, Ultimo Dragon to me, I mean, not that he was a heel, but he was always one of those that he was just kind of coming in and just beating everybody. Because I mean, I liked him, especially when he'd walk in with like the seven or eight belts that, that he had, and a couple of them they still look like you know um, the ten pounds of gold belt. Right. He, um, I don't know if we ever saw the Ultimo Dragon in his prime in America. Probably not. Already injured. Um, but Alex Wright, they were trying here. He, he, he had some good moments in a tag team with the Disco Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> he did. They, they yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> I remember. Called, what? But it was called Boogie Nights. <laughs> he was at least entertaining. And I don't know if you ever went to a WCW house show. Never did, actually. A pay-per-view. We went to Starcade several years in a row and in D.C. And... All, all the people that would actually do his little dance gesture with, with the elbows, hands above the his yeah, hands with it. Yep. It, like he was way more over than it looked. All people liked him, and Ultimo Dragon at this point, I think one of the reasons why they were trying to portray Alex Wright more as the heel is because Ultimo Dragon had just dropped Sonny Ono as his manager. So anytime, you know, they would drop somebody as a manager, it meant they were, they were trying to turn him face. But I think he was always kind of stuck where um, he wasn't quite, I guess, rude enough to be a heel, you know, but he didn't have enough personality to be a face. Yeah, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, the, the language barrier kind of got him. Yep. And great wrestler though. I mean I always like I always liked his matches. And, and another one um well the Orient Express never really talked. No. But they they, they didn't have to they had but, some great matches. And you knew they were bad guys. Um and that's kind of the way wrestling worked back when they had managers and stables. Yep. I liked when, well, that was one of the things when I thought about it, maybe I could you know, be a wrestler. Really what appealed to me more was maybe being a manager. You know, but now they really don't have too many managers. You know, Paul E is one of the very, very few, 
Um, and they should have put him with Roman you know, two, three years ago. I'm glad they finally uh, are doing that. And not just that, but I'm glad they finally put Alistair Black wearing pants and not just his underwear, but that's another story. He's on the TV right now. I'm a little behind. Anyway. Well, um, manager-wise, Lana had the opportunity to be a great manager, and they ruined her and Rusev, as we've discussed previously. Yep. Um, For just like... I think MVP would be better if he stayed as a manager role. I mean, I think he'd be great as that. But anyway, um, Alex, team minutes wasn't bored. Don't remember no. being bored. No, it wasn't. It was not a boring match at all. Um, and you know, it delivered exactly. You know, they they did a just a great job of building this card. But if you look at all the matches, um, you're like, okay, that that matchup makes sense. That would make sense. Then you, you look at the stories that go with it. Um, a couple of them I didn't quite remember the story. I didn't really know the story about it. Um, but, yeah, this one, Alex Wright, seemed like it was, you know, almost like two tweeners, half face, half heel going against each other. But – you know, it's, it was still a great match. Um, and even the next match it did surprise me. I knew it was going to be good. Um, I didn't think necessarily great because I I like Jeff Jarrett. I don't think he is, um, he is as great as a lot of people think he is. Um, I think he's definitely benefited from his family connections of his two WCW runs and he never never gets past the mid card here and you could see why one his choice of wrestling attire during this period what the hell up with Overalls. I think you know, and that's one of the questions I've been asking. I'm like, and you know, and when I watched it this again yesterday, you know, so I could refamiliarize myself with everything, and I'd noticed it had four straps in the front, three in the back. I don't know why I noticed something like that, but to me, it wasn't symmetrical, and it bothered me. But you know, and he has good moves. He has good ability. But the whole thing, I'm going to try to be like Ric Flair. He copied Flair's strut. Oh, and Ric Flair gave him permission to use the figure four. And, you know, and he, um, and he, him beating Malenko actually surprised me. Um, one of my favorite holds that I really think somebody needs to, like, take it on as their own, you know, the, uh, the Texas Cloverleaf. Love I think that, that move. Yeah, same here. And that it's because they can put it on, you know, so quick. Because it's not like the figure four, you know, where you got to grab it and twist either. You kind of do like Dusty Rhodes where you just kind of step over their leg and wrap it, you know, um, behind yours. Or you do like flare, you grab it and you turn with it to wrap it around yours. And then you still got to drop. And then you still got to put your leg over there. The Texas Cloverleaf, I mean, it's like he can just pick it up, throw that leg underneath, 
and have it up a lock boom turned over in uh, like a second. Because I see them do it that quick, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what just happened there? And, you know, he, he put it on it, but then it was only on him for about three seconds before he reached out and grabbed the ropes. And I was like, ah, they should have left that on there a little bit longer. You know, then have Malenko submit to the figure four. And I know they they were trying to push Jarrett. They're trying to get Jarrett over. You know, I just um, wasn't a fan of doing it over Malenko, even though the match itself was good. And I, I don't think, you know, these two together were going to have a bad match. Um, this was also the start where Deborah McMichael, you know, was uh, with uh, Jarrett. And here's the question. Were they a couple in real life? Jeff Jarrett was allegedly married during this time period. Yeah, because his wife died. I mean, like in, like in for real. Uh, she had cancer, I think. Yeah, in two and eight. Yeah. It, at this point, he would have been married. Deborah was divorcing Mongo McMichael. Which is why she's not Deborah McMichael here. Pairing worked with them here, and it worked with when he left for WWF. Like she right. played the role of beauty pageant perfectly. And apparently, she just finished her master's degree in criminal justice not too long ago. Like in real life. Good for her. Yep. Uh, now, this next match, Wrath and Mortis. Um, Mortis being Chris Canyon, Wrath being the former Adam Bomb. Yep, Brian Clark, right? Brian Clark. They, they were actually a decent tag team. Granted, the Mortal Kombat stuff was... A, a little hokey. It, it didn't get over with the crowd, but a decent, a decent tag team. And James Vandenberg is their manager. Like, perfect choice. I didn't remember him that well. You know, but he seemed like a slime ball, which I think was probably perfect. You know, that's it makes a good for a good manager when you have somebody that's a slime ball. Yeah, he. Uh, had a very demonic character, uh, a good run in TNA, but Wrath and Mortis, they could have, they could have done more. And I see why they're having them face the faces of fear, Ming and the Barbarian. Which to me is kind of a stretch having the faces of fear as the face team. You know what I'm saying? I mean that. Um, I mean, and the match match wasn't bad. I mean, I don't think there was a bad match on this card at all. I'm sitting looking at the list again, and none of these matches were bad. Um, but well, the fear kind of they're the last remnants of the dungeon of doom, right? So that. In itself, like, maybe, but 
Wrath and Mortis were heels because uh, Glacier was the face. Right, which Glacier um, wasn't even on the card. Uh, but, and plus, and they had Van, James Vandenberg. You know, this is still um, what majority of the time when they have a manager, especially a slimeball manager, they're going to be heels. You know, um, was it like Paul Ellering who would switch as the Road Warriors switched? If they became right. a heel, he became a heel. They became a face, he became a face. Um, same thing with Cornette, the few times he was a face. You know, um, but them pinning, um, I think they pinned the Barbarian, if I remember right. They did have the one impressive move where they did a superplex where I don't remember which one was on the other one's shoulders, but then that's when they suplexed the Barbarian. So it was like, it was pretty impressive. Now, unfortunately, you see that move about every other week on Raw, where they all of a sudden get everybody involved in doing, um, you know, they do like a combination suplex, powerbomb. Right. And it, it to this point where the spot gets old. And it's not as impressive because if everybody can do it, then it's just not that impressive anymore. But, but at this point, it's innovative. Yes, at this point it was, especially, I mean, these were, this is another match where you have all these muscle-bound guys, especially, you know, the Faces of Fear, Ming and the Barbarian. And they weren't muscle-bound. They were just Samoan, Polynesian, strong. I remember seeing the Barbarian, though, um, in person, and I don't know if I've ever actually mentioned this. I mean, I, I didn't actually get to meet him because I'm pretty sure, you know, he would have wanted to punch me too like Road Warrior Hawk. But um, they, they had, he was on a tour. This was in 2005. Um, they did a tour of military bases in the Pacific. And this is when I was stationed in Korea. And they were on my base. Yep. They, they actually came to Osan, Osan Air Base, where I was at. And they had the ring set up in the gym, you know, in the – um, in the on the basketball court, and I didn't know about it, which I was kind of mad that I didn't know about it. But I went there to work out, and I was and I was just I was doing cardio that day, you know. So I was on the elliptical for about forty five minutes to an hour, but I'd already seen the ring and I'd already seen him. All of a sudden, he comes walking by and he's kind of looking around. And he goes into the weight room and I think he was probably just checking it out, you know, uh, because I mean, yeah, he, um, even though there, he. They're not like the Steiners, you know, where he's all chiseled and everything. He's still a pretty stout boy. I wouldn't want to mess with him, you know. But um, but yeah, I saw him, you know, in person, and um, and yeah, I felt I felt kind of small, <laughs> you know. Well, you re- you remember uh, he was in the Road Warrior bench press contest as a member of the Powers of Pain. Yeah, him and Warlord. He was a lot bigger then. So he had gotten smaller by the mid-2000s. And he, believe me, he was still a big boy. Um, and a buddy of mine, he was on the elliptical right next to me, and he didn't know who he was because, you know, his friend, he, you know, he actually didn't watch wrestling. And I said, you know what? I said, I could take him. You know, just joking. Um, and he was laughing because we both knew the truth. He would have he probably snapped me in half. Um but I, and I was mad because I didn't know about it because you know as soon as I got done of course I mean I wasn't going to hang around there, um, 
without taking a shower or anything and, and break out in hives because of all the sweat. So ended up missing it. But, I mean, it was kind of cool to see him walking by because I was like, man, I remember him from when I was a kid, you know. Um, but uh, but before we move on to the next match, do we have anything else to say about this one? Nope. All right, we will go ahead and take our, our second commercial break. And we are back. Um, speaking of, of big boys and muscle-bound boys, the Giant, the big show, Paul White. And, of course, he was just known as the Giant here. Um, him and Scott Norton. Short match, thankfully. Um, so the, the, at this point, the Giant had turned three times. Had it been three times already? He started off as a member of the Dungeon of Doom, got really popular when he destroyed Ric Flair for the heavyweight championship, lost it to Hogan, goes to the NWO, gets kicked out of the NWO, rejoined. He joined, he got kicked out, he joined again, got kicked out, then he went to WWF, like, un- unbelievable how they kind of blew it with him. He was just too too young, too naive in the business to really fulfill his potential in WCW. Scott Norton, part-time player in, in the NWO. And, and this is just them sacrificing an NWO member to to the giant, really. And that's why it's so quick and it's impressive because Norton is every bit at 375. Uh, and it's solid muscle. And, and IWGP champion, which they said all the time because it was Mike Tanay on the announcing booth. But like it was what it needed to be. Yeah, and one of the things about um, Paul White, and you didn't see this too much because they didn't like him doing this, he could actually do some ridiculously good moves for somebody his size. You know, he w- he could do moves almost like a cruiserweight. Um, because when I, when he first started, yeah, he was this mysterious dude that was like front row. They kept trying to grab Hogan as Hogan was walking by. And then um, before I actually saw him wrestle on the videos, because at this point I was in I was stationed in Japan, and I was always catching WCW on videos months after the fact. Um. Well, I was flipping through the channels when they included Japanese channels. Well, there he was, and he was teaming with Sting. You know, of course, Sting was a face, and this dude who had no idea what his name was, he was a heel, but he was doing drop kicks. He was doing all these other moves. I'm like, oh, whoa. 
that dude's like seven foot tall. I mean, and he's just flying around. And well, when when he first started, his body type where he was lean was like unbelievable. He was what hadn't even hit four hundred pounds yet. And like and you were saying, you know, they wasted him. Once you have a match with and it, it's the it, the old WWF formula, as you know. Oh, excuse me, sorry. Bless you. Thank you. Once you match with Hogan, and you get fed to Hogan, what's left for you? Yeah. You know, his very first match, he won the world title. And I don't know if you have you ever heard the story about um yeah because I mean he was so young in the business and very naive and he's like well why do the belt I'm like oh you wear the belt you're the champ yeah man you're the champ and you wear the belt wherever you go because you're the champ and so he's wearing it through airports <laughs> you know and he was snicker at him and I think it was finally Sting who may have been the person who actually saw him and said what are you doing he's like well they told me to wear it. he's like Take the belt off. I mean, you know, that's where Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, like, they're to mess with you, where it's detrimental to your confidence and who you are as a human being. Well, I think this was even before they were um, even trying to. I mean, they were they were still pretty hot in the WWF at the time, so this was somebody else messing with him because he was so young. Yeah. He became a champion in 96 right after Scott Hall arrived. Okay. So I'm sure it's real easy to mess with him. Same with Goldberg, but very, very powerful human being. Yeah, former NCAA Division One basketball player at Wichita State. You know, so, I mean, he's a, he's a legit athlete, and you know, he's probably in the best shape of his life right now. That's the scary thing. Right. He's in his 40s. Um, and, but, yeah, this match was exactly another one, exactly the way you thought it would be. You know, two guys that they're not there to do a bunch of moves. They're, uh, they're there to be powerful and brutal and punch, kick, choke, slam, done. That's it. And that's it. Uh, the only it, it, the only match that didn't even come close to ten minutes. It was five and a half minutes. That was it. Done. Then you get partners of convenience. Yes, this is what, what I was referring to. This is they weren't tag teams. They were just like you said, out of convenience. Savage, obviously, end up. And you got Lex Luger and Diamond Dallas Page who's feuding with the Macho Man. Right. This, you see this match and Scott Hall and Randy Savage are two people that got it. And I say that because how many times did the NWO put someone over? Uh, not very often. And and actually when 
when I was watching this um, and seeing Savage walk out with Elizabeth, you know, accompanying him, I'm like, well, that's something you don't see every day. He's, he's you know, being accompanied by his ex-wife. Um, and they were professional, both of them were, you know, and Savage, you know, the um, the dark side of the ring, they even talked about it. I mean, he, even though they didn't last as a couple, you know, he always did care about her, and he never wanted to see her get hurt. And, you know, he was remarried, and uh, and when she passed away, ironically enough, while she was living with Lex Luger, of all people, um, you know, uh, it it still hurt him. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's just, a, you know, with her, it's just a shame to see, you know, what happened. Um, and Savage, obviously, you know, um, as well, you know, made it both rest in peace. But this match accomplished what it was supposed to. Um, it gave hope that the NWO can be beat. And, you know, I don't even remember how the match ended now. That's really sad. A diamond cutter. Okay. I mean, I was thinking that had, it had to be a diamond cutter because the torture rack, most people didn't care about it at this point. But but they were but trying it, to get DDP and the diamond cutter over. Right. And and it did. And what a feud Randy Savage and DDP had. Yeah. Um and I'm pretty sure DDP, I mean, he is probably extremely grateful to Randy Savage for um, putting him over the way he did. A whole tribute video to him. Yeah. We should. Because DDP, I mean, um, he got it, even though he didn't start becoming a wrestler until he was in his late 30s. Um, but even as a manager, even as a producer, I mean, he really got it. I think maybe because of his background as um, promoter, you know, not necessarily a wrestling promoter, but just an entertainment promoter, you know, mm-hmm. he he got it. He understood. And, it, and still does. And still does. Um, and, you know, um, He's in the Hall of Fame for good reason. Now, the WWF, they also wasted him. Even though the WWF, they made Paul White, they, they really brought him along because when he, when he went there, they had to send him to OVW to lose weight and actually learn how to be a wrestler. Whereas um, DDP actually learned how to be a wrestler with WCW, but he went from being a manager to being a wrestler. But he was a manager who was bigger than most of the wrestlers. <laughs> you know, but, hey, here's the ultimate question in 1997. You, you, have, you have one choice, Kimberly Page or Miss Elizabeth. Wow. Um Oh, you know, that is a tough one. Let me think about that one and, and get back with you tomorrow. You just don't want to say it on the podcast. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Miss Elizabeth looked better there in this in this match 
than she might have in the 80s when she was the only female on TV. When we and, you know, kids. and that's saying something. Um, because, I mean, she was not ugly then. But she always and, she always had her she always did her role very very well. And, and honestly, you had Deborah earlier. Um, on the opposite channel, you have Sable, and you have the trash bag horror Sunny. Oh, don't forget about Miss um, Jacqueline on this side. Oh, that's right, Miss Jackie too. But. Like, really, she was clothed, and nobody looked better than Miss Elizabeth. But, yeah, I thought the, um, yeah, this match, I mean, like I said, it was good. It did what it needed to do. You know, a nice no-disqualification match, which made sense for for the storylines that they were pushing at the time. Because you definitely wanted to have a winner for this one. And now you get to the glorious main event. Which definitely had some good moments. Um, So the background to this, being a WCW fan at this time, remember I got two nights off of work a week, and I made sure both were available for wrestling. (laughs) Sunday and Monday. So... I I never missed a pay-per-view, never paid for one either, but never missed a pay-per-view, never missed a, a Raw. And being that we were T, TNT at the time, they would replay Nitro for the West Coast, so you wouldn't miss because we didn't have DVRs. So Arn Anderson had injured his neck. And this is where Arn Anderson had surgery, basically got patted on the back, lost feeling in his arm, and comes to the realization that his wrestling career is over. So they're trying to reform the horseman. You've already got Mongo McMichael as the enforcer. You've got Chris Benoit is the up-and-comer. Ric Flair is Ric Flair. Arn Anderson in the J.J. Dillon role. And Jeff Jarrett begging to be a horseman. That's not a fit. No. And they end up offering a spot to Kurt Henning. Because I, I actually remember watching that when when it first aired originally. Um, when he offered him, you know, his spot. So a week later, the NWO comes out as the NWO always did, and they did a parody of Arn Anderson giving Kurt Henning his spot. And I thought it was I thought it was tasteless then. I think it's tasteless now what they did because this was a real situation. I mean, I get they weren't trying to hurt somebody, but they crossed some, laughed, they crossed some lines. I laughed hysterically during this promo because it's not something you saw in wrestling at the time. 
And then when you start reading the early version of the wrestling news sheets, you go, oh, well, that was real. Why did they do that? Well, apparently it was a Taylor Terry Taylorism. He thought it would be, you know, funny. Problem is, Arn didn't think it was funny. And he and, and even though the cooler that Kevin Nash is holding was Arn's cooler, because Kevin asked to borrow it, he said, "Yeah, we're going to do a spot." But Arn said, "Okay," but he didn't realize how far they were going. He said, even on his podcast, he's talked about it a little bit. He doesn't want to go too far into the weeds with it. You know, um, and I don't know if do you listen to his podcast at all? Every Tuesday. Yep. So, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't happy with it. Flair definitely wasn't happy with it. Um, you know, I, I just thought it was – I thought it was tasteless. So you set up this promo, and whether or not you liked it or I liked it, like, doesn't matter. But you have the horseman as faces. You have – the NWO is heels. The weird thing is, like, popular heels at this time. And you're going to do war games in horseman country. So war games in Greensboro, North Carolina, where the event was created, where Flair has had many of his special matches, like that was the home of WCW for a long time, right? Well, this was this was Winston Salem, but close enough. Ah, oh, I was wrong. Dang. But it, it's North Carolina is horseman country. Oh, especially there, because well, now, you know when you have there the Triangle area, you know have Greensboro, High Point, Winston Salem. That is definitely horseman country, and, and that. And that's the point. Um, was Kurt Henning the best fit for a horseman? You know, I think he could have been, but at the same time, you know, at this point, Kurt Henning was um, Hennig. It's hard not to throw that N in there at the end. Um, but, yeah, Kurt Hennig was more of a singles guy. You know, I couldn't even really see him as part of the NWO either. You know, but if he was going to be part of a team, it was going to be like him and one other guy, that was it. Not, you know, him joining a faction of either the Full Horseman or the NWO, because I liked it when it was him and Flair with Heenan as the manager, but not always accompanying them when they were in the WWF, because you just, you felt like these two guys could actually take on everybody there. You know, so as far as it being a horseman, yes and no. But how how brilliant is this? So no one six is obviously the the best wrestler wrestler of the NWO side. Conan is all right. Buff Bagwell is is what he was, and Kevin Nash is like the star power. Kevin Nash was the big man. He wrestled like a big man. I like Conan. Um, I think Conan um, Conan's got skills. He is very underrated. But then again, you get out of Mexico, and he is it. I mean, he's like the Hulk Hogan of Mexico. You know, for good reason. He was, but he, he you have that, and then you have the Horsemen, and 
they're playing on the pay-per-view that Kurt Henning got jumped and has injured his arm. And when he came in, you know, he had that sling, and all of a sudden he breaks out those handcuffs. you got to get into the match. Yeah. Well, prior to this happening, this was a relatively good War Games match. Oh, it was. It was. I mean, it was back and forth. You know, Benoit, of course, was was handling himself the way he always did, you know, despite what? despite what happened later on in life. But, you know, we're talking about him as a wrestler. Can't take that away. You know, he handled it great. I thought he, um, you know, seeing him or seeing any of them really throw um, Sean Waltman, you know, six around, I've always got a joy out of watching that, you know. Um, that it, it was good, and they were, and of course they were talking about, you know, well, Kurt, you know, he may not be able to come in. It'll be three against four, and or this, and Flair is coming in. He's chopping everybody because that's what Flair did, and you thought they could pull it off, pull it off, um, and then of course Kurt comes in. So it, and, it's amazing how in the war games that the heel team always won the coin toss. I know you would think they have the coin toss rigged. Like, you know, uh, I wish I knew spots and backgammon and all that stuff, roulette, as well as the he- knowing the heels would win the war games toss. Yep. And that's how you know who which team was a heel. Whoever won so, the toss. It, it's three on four. And there's a lot of drama over whether or not Henning's going to come in or not. And by the way, McMichael handled himself pretty well, considering how green, you know, he always was. And now, now you got Kurt Henning coming in. He's the fourth member of the cage. Is about to get locked for good. And he gets locked. And then he takes that sling off, and he breaks up the handcuffs. And the one thing that the first thing that came to my mind is, where do they keep getting these handcuffs with the chains that are four foot long? Oh, that was that was perfect. Like talk about planning. <laughs> because oh yeah, those, those are war games handcuffs. And it's an important detail that their hands are Mongo and Chris Benoit, that their hands are handcuffed above their head to the top of the cage. And their reactions to how it all went down, you know, with Benoit spitting in Kevin Nash's face, um, and of course, Mongo, you know, kicking and everything, and it... It didn't. So you got Mongo and Benoit chained to the cage, and you got Ric Flair taking a butt kicking. Yeah. And it shows. To me, you know, because we talk about this is what killed 
the horsemen, you know, in really wrestling in North Carolina was the way they did this. And I think if you really look at it, it's where they were hurting Flair as well. I mean, not just literally hurting, but figuratively as well. Um, because they smacked him around and beat him down like he stole something right there in not just horseman territory, but flair territory. Um, I thought having McMichael be the one to submit, also that part did make sense with him being the newest and him, you know, being the least experienced, you know, if you want to call it that. I mean, it it would make sense for him to do that. Um, but, but they they went a little far slamming Flair's head into, you know, with the door. Well, he has to submit because they basically got Flair laid out. They open the cage door, and they're going to guillotine Rick Flair. Yeah. So for his, for his health, he's got to give up because, I mean, if any group's going to do it, it's going to be the NWO. And then he gives up, and they do it anyway, which they should have known. And I wonder how much of Flair's head he actually caught. He 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 obviously got a little bit. He had to. Yeah. But uh, you, you see this, and this is this is how WCW kind of booked itself into failing because not. Who went home happy? You got seventeen thousand, however many million watching on pay per view. Home, home happy that night. Not the uh, the people there watching in person, because they're they're Horseman fans, and they just saw the Horseman basically get ended. I mean, yeah, I know they continued on. They've had other iterations of them, but I mean, but this was it. And, and the, the sad thing is, you build this super super faction. It's been going on for almost two years, and what face actually got over on it? Well, consistently Our, got over on them. Because every once in a while they would win a match, but then turn around and within a month, it would, the NWO would be right back on top again. Yeah, and, and you could have had the Horsemen win here without much of an issue. Now, to bring Henning in and to make him a a star. I see where you did that. But you take the the horseman match the way they did it, like no no wonder why everything died here. Oh well uh. Well, so in the coming weeks, Kyle, because we've already run through this card, what did you think overall about the card? Well, at the time, I kind of, I really enjoyed it. 
even the ending, uh, because I was a Kurt Henning fan, and the the next night he beats Mongo for the U.S. title, and that that was kind of the end of Mongo there. But like it cemented him as a as a big player. It, it was a surprise on television. But long term, gosh, they messed this up. And the sad thing is, this card was a, it, I would say it was somewhere between good and great. Um, there may have been some that were better, but this was definitely a good card. It was solid. All the matches were solid. Um, and it actually does hold up even now. You watch it, and it doesn't look dated. Uh, the storylines don't look dated necessarily. Um, but I'd get give it a thumbs up, definitely net positive. Um, and so the thing about Kurt Henning, you know, we discussed that he was a second-generation wrestler. Next week, we're going to be talking about the top ten third-generation wrestlers. And I wonder if we can – have the, <laughs> the the interesting list like we had for the second generation. I, I think we can. We're that good. I think it'll be fun. Yep. And so I'm going to get started on my list a little bit earlier than what I have been uh, for that one because this one may have to take even more research trying to narrow it down to 20 and then trying to rank those 20. But, Tal, I look forward to speaking with you this week. So you take it easy, my friend. Try to stay safe and stay away from any any kind of diseases. You too, man.